The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, who published the iconic Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across the fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing both in the UK and around the world. On the Red Hill by Mike Parker is the story of Fru Goch, the Red Hill that weaves the family relationships and love into an ever-changing landscape of a year in rural Wales. At its heart is the story of the house that Mike and his partner Preds inherit and the unfolding of the lives of Reg and George who live there and the community around them. Mike, huge welcome to Planet Pod and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Lovely to be here. You inherited, and I've struggled with Fugoff, but I'm trying, you inherited the house some time ago, I mean, back in 2011, I think. So the book's taken a while to come to fruition. Can I start by asking you where it came from and, and, and how you came to write it? Well, it came from uh, our relationship with Reg and George. Reg and George were a couple who, a couple of fellows who got together as a couple in 1949 in London, uh, moved to Bournemouth through the 50s and 60s and then moved to rural Wales in 1972. And this was the third of their three houses that they had in rural Wales and ran as a bed and breakfast. Uh, Preds and I got to know them about 20 years ago. Uh, I just moved to Wales. Preds is from just down the road here. I met him uh, then and we got to know Reg and George and, and they used to come up to the house and then just before they, they both died in 2011, aged 94 and 84. And just before they died, they let on that they were leaving us the house. And so we moved in in the spring of 2011 and, and it wasn't just a legacy of a house. It was a mountain of diaries and paintings and photographs because George had been a professional photographer that was his career and out of this mountain of stuff I mean I just thought, sat there on the floor I remember we were, well, we were especially moving in we were especially moving house I was supposed to be unpacking boxes and I just sat on the floor in the middle of this chaos reading diaries and looking through photo albums and thinking my goodness what a story I mean I knew some of it from having been the conversations I'd had with Reg and George over the years but it was a glimpse on such a journey, such lives well lived. And, and also, of course, for a gay couple, you know, they were together from 1949 for 62 years. And they went from being, for the first 18 years of their lives together, their relationship was illegal. And they went from that all the way to being the first same-sex couple to be married in Machuntleth Register Office, you know? That is such a span of time in one couple. So it the book just presented itself. I mean, I just could not refuse it. You know, this is one of those things. And I, but I'm glad I waited a while. I waited, you know, we've been here more or less nearly seven years before I kind of took up the pen and started to, to write it. And I'm really glad I did wait because actually it is a book about the turning of the year 
and about the seasons and how they kind of flow into one another. And you have to have gone around that cycle a few times, really, to, to, to let it percolate into your brain and, and into the book. Absolutely. It must have been extraordinary inheriting other people's lives lock, stock and barrel like that, because, I mean, normally when we inherit something, there's been a sifting or there's been a sharing out or, you know, just to come with all of your own um, memories and lives and things into a house that was so full. I mean, you know, just practically, when earth did you put everything? <laughs> well, that's the thing, because, I mean, <laughs> Prince and I are both terrible hoarders at the best of times. George and Reg were terrible hoarders, too. Uh, I mean, books are the, the thing. I mean, George was an avid, avid bibliophile who collected thousands of books. I mean, the place was groaning under the weight of, you know, some bookshelves were stacked three deep, you know, and um, and they were just in every single room. And I've got thousands of my own. I mean, it was, you know, I've had to get rid of quite a lot of books, <laughs> which has been so painful. Um, but, you know, there were things like there was a whole shelf. No, there was a whole bookcase of biographies, massive biographies of minor European royalty in the 19th century, you know, and I, 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 you know, I just, I knew damn well that I was never going to become something, I was going to spend a quiet winter evening reading the, you know, the, the biography of Princess Stephanie of Hohenzollern or something like that, it was never going to happen, so there were some things that were quite easy to get rid of, but, um, you know, it kept a lot, and it's, it's, a, it's an old farmhouse, you know, it's a, it's a 17th, 18th century farmhouse, it's a lot of space, really, um, so, you know, we've filled it pretty much already. So you found the house has sort of absorbed your life into their life and the kind of interweaving of, of your of your experiences are clearly really important. But you framed it, as you said, within the kind of turning of a year cycle. Um, but you're not a kind of country boy, are you? I mean, you grew up in Birmingham, so you're kind of <laughs> an interloper to Wales, though I guess you're fully Welsh by adoption now. Um, how, how have you managed to blend that sense of landscape and place with the sense of the stories? Well, that sort of came really to itself because the day that I realised that the structure of the book was going to be the way it was, it was one of those rare ideas that I could split it into four. There were four of us, Reg, George, Prez and myself. You know, I'm very, very inspired by the elements and the seasons. I find them being of increasing importance as I get older, really. Um, and there were four of those and, and within some sort of old pagan traditions, there's this idea of, you know, each of the directions of the compass is ascribed to one of the elements and, and that works for me as well. So the realisation came the day that I kind of thought, well, actually, you know, the four of us really, really do embody an element apiece. So Reg was the element of air. I mean, he was just the airiest, most mercurial man I think I've ever met. He was the best conversationalist I've ever known in my life. I mean, he, his ideas flitted around. He was like a, a bird in flight, you know. George was a man of fire, a man of passion, a man of temper, a man of heat, you know, uh, in so, so many ways. I am Mr. Water, you know, I mean, I've been in my pond this morning, I've done 30 lengths of my, my swimming pond this morning. I'm obsessed by water, I seek it out all the time. It's why whales are such a good fit for me, you know. And Preds, from three miles down the road, is a man tending his own soil on his own rock, you know, he is the man of earth. And it was when the realisation that those four things kind of matched up so well and it wasn't contrived. I mean, I, I thought, is this contrived? And I went out walking for two days, me and the dog, just to test this theory, test the, the structure of the book in my head and see if it could fit all the things that I needed to talk about in the book, if they would all fit within this loose structure and, and found that they did really. Um, 
And that was a liberation because there was this mountain of material of the lives of Reg and George, an element of memoir, myself and Preds, history, sort of social history, nature, um, stuff about Wales, stuff about politics, stuff about culture. You know, so to try and pack all this stuff in, the danger was I could overload it. But actually having this very simple but beautiful, I think, structure that lent itself to me just liberated the material and allowed it to, to kind of flow in all sorts of different ways. And that was a real eureka moment. And I just, I, I honestly don't think you get many of those in life when you get a, an idea that is fully formed and absolutely perfect, just lands on you in an instant. It's so good, you're kind of going, oh, is, is am, am I just wishing this into being? Am I, am I hoping this is true? Because I really want it to be. Uh, and this is why I went out walking for two days, just to test it really, and found yeah. it fitted. And that's the point, isn't it, about walking? I mean, you know, to go back mm. to Wainwright and the prize itself, I mean, there's that liberating sense of when you walk, you you unlock something, and none of us are quite sure how that it's working in our brains, but you unlock something and ideas flow and structures come. And I guess that's what poets would call a found poem, isn't it? For you, it was a kind of fa- almost like a found narrative. So um, clearly lived experience is hugely important to this book, but also to the way that you live your life. I mean, how how has it been moving from a very urban environment to Wales? I mean, you know, reading about kind of some of your story, you were drawn to Wales in this kind of kind of very visceral, evocative way. But how's how's that adjustment been? Do you did you feel Welsh the minute you kind of packed up and joined, or has this been just an evolving process? Well, it's very much an evolving process, and it's one that sort of ebbs and flows in all directions at the same time, really. And I have said before, and I think I. I think it's true that the longer I'm here, and I've been here 20 years now, it's 20 years this spring that I moved full-time to Wales. I've been writing about Wales through the 90s for the Rough Guide. But I mean, I moved here in in the spring of 2000. And I kind of, the longer I'm here, I feel both more Welsh and kind of more English at the same time, because it's sort of, it, it, the the light of, shining the light of Welshness, if you like, just just makes me realise that, you know, it shines a, a brighter light into the parts of me that will never be Welsh, you know, and I'm not trying to be, you know, so I love the kind of the, the, the both, both and neither existence. I really enjoy that. That's who, that's, that's my lot kind of thing. And I wanted to write about that in the book as well, how, you know, because, because George was a man who, he came to Wales bursting with the idea of this romance. He'd, his, his love of the countryside had been ignited in the 1930s as a, a teenager and as a young fellow in his 20s before he went to fight in the war and he was one of that first generation who went out of the city he grew up in a slum in Hackney and uh, went out on his bike with his mates at the weekend into the very brand new youth hostels they'd go staying in the hostels for in the 30s uh, and the places that did it for him then were the lakes and Wales and Scotland and the west country you know it was the kind of the west and the north you know the direction the compass points that attract those of us of a certain ilk really, Wainwright included of course, um, and, and that was what he wanted to kind of reignite, but it was a very very romantic ideal that couldn't actually live up to the reality, I mean, and I just wanted to explore that in the book as well, because looking at his diaries it was clear that he kind of fell out of love with the reality of life in rural Wales, you know, the fact that it is, you know, you, you look at the surroundings and you see apparently it looks very empty and there's not many people there. So people mistake that for thinking, oh, well, I can, you know, have this complete privacy. No, 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 no. 
if you want complete privacy, you go and live in the middle of a city. Because if you live in a rural community like this, you have to give of yourself. You have to give something of yourself. And you've got to be part of it because that's how you will survive and thrive. Or you won't. Um, and I think George arrived, fired up. Um, but I think like a lot of uh, English visitors to Wales, and not just Wales, but to, to the wild places that we have, um, there is a tendency, and George certainly had this, to over-romanticise what it is you're going to find there. I mean, when they moved here in the 70s, he started these poems, and all they're, they're full of words like forgotten and lost and hidden and all these sort of adjectives for a landscape that it isn't forgotten, lost or hidden. You know, it's been, it's been tilled and uh, produced and worked and argued over and sold and bought. And every little bit of it is, is, has got a story to tell kind of thing. Uh, and I think that is a mistake that a lot of people make. And I think the, 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 the general narrative around rural, the rural idyll, you know, that, that we see on those programmes uh, on television in the afternoons or sometimes in the Sunday papers promoting the, you know, move to the country and have a perfect existence and all this kind of stuff. And they all fall into that same trap because actually the reality of it, and I really, really wanted to try and address this in this book, the reality of it is much harder, much more knotted, but so much more rewarding. And I think George, it, it sort of went quite sour for George. He had a terrible neighbour dispute in their second house. That was with him until his dying day, to be honest. That was the last thing he ever said to me when I saw him just before he died. And his, his dementia had wiped almost all of his memory clear, but he still remembered the neighbour dispute um, and it was still tearing away inside him. You know, so, you know, it's, it's a gap between the reality, the romantic uh, dream and the reality. And I wanted to explore that as well in myself too, because I know that I am susceptible to that. You know, I am just as much of a romantic interloper as anybody else and I came with all the same baggage and in, in a way it's you know life is so much easier if it would only stay as the kind of romantic postcard but of course reality comes in but like I say that is always more interesting if much much harder. And there are parallels in that it's that's extraordinary hearing you say that because there are parallels in that with the way that people look at, at conservation and environmental protection and you know we have this view that everything has to be preserved and that it's all beautiful and perfect and it actually isn't a lot of the work that we need to do to preserve and care for our landscape is actually quite tough and it requires some quite difficult decisions in terms of what species we support and what we don't and culling and all those things so so it's I think it's stepping away from the romantic to actually get under the skin of the reality you know it sounds like that's encapsulated in 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 the work that you've that you've produced is there a particular passage or extract that might kind of sum it up for, for listeners that you would be prepared to share and read for us um, to give people a flavour of the book. I mean, obviously, they're all going to go out and buy a copy as a result of listening to this. So that's well, let us hope so, yes, yes. Yes, definitely, that's what we need, but but just as a taster. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I thought I'd read a bit, really, which is about now, this time of year, because, I mean, we go through the, the cycle of the year. Uh, and this is just a bit about the, the sort of late summer, August in particular, and it's it's confessing that I'm not a huge fan of the month of August. And I, 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 writing this book made me realise that I hadn't ever been a big fan of the, the month of August for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, so that's, it's just a little bit about that and about the contrast with our lives now, Preds and my life here at Trugart, compared with George and Reg's life. Because of course they were running a B&B &B here. We're not running a B&B &B here, believe you me. I would be the world's worst 
uh, B&B manager, you know, I can't even be pleasant to people I love at breakfast time, let alone people, complete strangers. So, um, you know, it wise, was, it, de- wise decision, if I may say. Oh, like. Know your limits, isn't it? That's what <laughs> life's about. Know your limits. So, uh, so this is about August. But just one thing you need to know about this, the Welsh word for the month of July is Godfenav. And that comes from the words Godfen Hav, which means the end of summer. So basically the Welsh for July, the month before this one, is summer's over, it's gone. And that always seemed to me terribly pessimistic and a little bit gloomy and ever so ever so Welsh. But uh, as you'll see here, it does come, come good in the end. Inevitably, August is our busiest month for visitors too. The house buzzes with life. Though as we once again run the hoover round and change the beds, we have been known to mutter icy thoughts that the main difference between now and 30 years ago is that Reg and George earned good money from the annual onslaught. They even made old friends pay to stay and would perhaps have tried the same had any family members ever visited. They never did though, not once, in all the 40 years that Reg and George lived in Wales. And in that one fact is perhaps an indication the single-mindedness with which they pursued their new life. Preds and I could never be so ruthless, I'm glad to say, though at least that is partly thanks to the legacy. For all the outdoor dinners and moonlit swims, the easy days and hazy nights, I sometimes find the weight of expectation on summer overwhelming, especially once schools break up and a quick trip into town becomes a study of family tensions in matching cagoules. An area that relies so heavily on tourism can kid itself for much of the year that it is economically and culturally sustainable, but the illusion is left for dead by the thundering juggernaut of the summer holidays. I'm starting to see that the Welsh are right. For me too, July is Gorfenhav, the end of summer. August has long been one of my least favorite months plagued often with illness, both of body and spirit. In three of the last five Augusts, I've lost the hearing in my one good ear and been plunged into a dark and lonely tunnel, even worse when we are full with guests. Trees look tired and the landscape listless, particularly along the lanes where towering walls of bramble and bracken begin to collapse beneath their own sodden weight. I wait for the golden sound to cut through my deafness. And then it comes. Clarity and September are calling. Perfect. And I completely agree with you about August. And uh, It's funny, isn't it? I've had, I've had quite a few emails from people saying, thank you for saying that. Thank you for... Because it's, it's like saying I don't like Christmas or something. You know, it's, it, I'm, and I love Christmas. But it's, it, is, it is kind of saying the unsayable in a way, that, that, that this yeah. time of, you know. And if you, it's quite an interesting exercise, actually. Just try writing down in a bored moment. Just try writing down, ranking the months in order of your preference and how, and it's, it's really interesting to do. Um, and I found that August was, you know, only marginally above February, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and on that note, (laughs) 
Thank you so much, Mike. I mean, do you have a, we've been asking all of our authors, do you have a call to action um, that you'd like listeners to, to this and hopefully then readers of the book to take away? Is there something that you feel, you know, perhaps in an environmental conservation or in a wider sense that, that you'd like people to do or to think about as a result of uh, reading the book? I mean, obviously, we now have our homework about listing, listing months and then creating a, an appropriate poem from that. But, but what, what would your call to action be? Well, I would say what the book is about and what this year has been about as well. I mean, obviously, we've had this extraordinary, bizarre year um, where we've all been, been kind of locked down. And actually, that is what the book is about. It's about it is about the hyper local, you know, and I think what we've all rediscovered this last six months. For many people, it's been a terribly difficult six months, but there has been this amazing thing that I think very, very many of us have realised anew. And that is just what is right underneath our own noses. You know, we've had to look again at our Mr. Square in Wales, the square, our square mile, our patch, our manor. We've all had to look really closely and look much deeper at that. And that's what I want people not to forget from this year. And I hope what they'll take away from On the Red Hill as well is a sense of the importance of, of that, of your patch. Not just to assume that everything that's good happens elsewhere, that it's all far far away. You know, start local. And if you learn to really engage with the, with the hyper-local and what's right under your nose, then you're in a much better frame of mind to engage with the wider issues of conservation, ecology, and, and where we're going and, and where our community and society is going. Thank you. That's perfect. That's a perfect call to action and something we can all do immediately. And as you say, we probably have been doing in the last few months as a result of the pandemic. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the pod and for, for sharing the book and, and your insight into how you write and also into the lives of Rich and George. So um, good luck with the prize and thank you very much. Thank you. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. On the Red Hill by Mike Parker is published by Cornerstone Penguin and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website along with extracts or visit our website theplanetpod.com where you can catch up on interviews with the other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our PlanetPod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.